You're listening to a podcast of Spurious Morality. And welcome to a podcast of spurious morality. I'm Johnston, and with me this week I have Mansoor. Hello. And I have Greg. Hello, everyone. And we're here to talk about Wild Blue Yonder, which at the time of recording was on, um, well, certainly less than 24 hours ago. Uh, it's the second of this this mini 60th anniversary specials, 14th Doctor era we're getting. Of course, the second story to feature David Tennant and Catherine Tate as the Doctor and Donna again. Um, very, very different to the Star Beast, this one. We said last week uh, that the Star Beast was a very sort of... It was like a Russell T. Davis series opener. It was very much sort of like Partners in Crime and Smith and & Jones and Rose and that kind of thing. Uh, this was something very different. This is perhaps the kind of episode I'd say you get towards the end of a Russell T. Davis series, one that's a bit more experimental and... A bit braver, maybe. Um, so I'm thinking Blink or Midnight, that kind of thing, um, which I've seen quite a lot of comparison to. I've seen some comparison to Heaven Sent on Twitter as well. Uh, Heaven Sent obviously was a one-hander. This is what, well, for the most part, this was a two-hander. So there's quite a bit we can compare it to. It's certainly the kind of episode that we've seen before um, and indeed heard before, if you follow Big Finish. But I think that this this definitely did quite a lot of work, sort of very low-key and quietly. Um, so before we continue, obviously there are going to be spoilers for Wild Blue Yonder, so you've not heard it, uh, you've not watched it yet, uh, don't listen to this until you have. But in the meantime, I'm going to ask Mansour what your thoughts were on it. Go ahead. Uh, just a very good episode. Um uh, the opening was kind of almost this little mini-sode separate to the rest of it uh, that just kind of set a fun tone that then contrasts quite nicely with the rest of the episode. Um, and I think on balance, just it quite well judged to do something as weird and unusual as this, as the middle episode, and have it perhaps sandwiched by you know, two... Uh, bigger, showier ones uh, at the start and finish. Um, so, yeah, very much enjoyed it. And what about you, Greg? I thought it was really good. I um, I was impressed that they made the decision to do such a spare, you know, almost, I don't want to say empty, but, you know, a, a two-hander like this, you know. 
since these are ostensibly, you know, the, the 60th anniversary specials to have something that's this pared down and, you know, doesn't, because, because the, the internet rumors about this too, were, were just utterly ridiculous. I mean, I don't think there was a living doctor that wasn't rumored to be in this at one point or another. And, and I'm, I'm very happy that they just issued all of that and just decided to give us like one more really good, just straight up adventure with the, with the doctor and Donna. And, and I think it, it came across very well. It's, it's a very creepy episode. It's unsettling in a way that we haven't had in a Doctor Who story in a very long time. It's got some very entertaining moments. It, it teaches us a lot about the characters. There's a lot of intense emotion that's sprinkled through it. It's it's just very, very good and and then again like very surprising that they that they chose this route but i i shouldn't be surprised i guess because russell davis has you know incredible instincts for this sort of thing and very much knows what he's doing and that was on full display here yet again like this was this was an excellent episode for me yeah it's it's a very very russell t davis episode so before i compared it to uh, midnight but i guess this is kind of what we'd get if midnight had a massive budget you know midnight was almost entirely set on that one tiny vehicle set and it was you know it helped it was nice and claustrophobic and this still felt claustrophobic but it's got what i read in one review is probably the longest corridor we've ever seen in doctor who uh, the whole spaceship was massive and the set was beautiful and um, you know, CGI definitely helped it look better. Um, and I think it's the first, arguably one of the first times that the CGI has been used to supplement what's there already as opposed to kind of stand in for it or or that kind of thing. It worked well. I think it blended beautifully. And um, yeah, that, that big budget is still on display and it's great. It was a mix of effects, I think. Looking at some of the behind-the-scenes behind stuff, they did a lot of practical effects for you know the limbs and the hands and things, um, but then obviously yeah that that corridor was extended with a lot of CGI and and this is similar to like the Meep that I think they've gotten over the years so much better at blending practical and CGI elements like much better than you know if you look back to the Slithine in in uh, two thousand and five where it, it didn't really mesh anywhere near as well. And I think it's very Doctor Who that, you know, the effects while they're, you know, much, much better and much better integrated than what we've seen in the past. And, you know, again, they're really showing off the the budget that they have in these specials. It still looks a little bit cheesy. And I think that's perfect <laughs> Doctor Who. You know, I, 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 I think... I almost prefer that to like a just completely straight, you know, utterly convincing effect. Yeah, it wouldn't feel the same. But like for this story in particular, it kind of fits with that nightmarish quality of like, you know, not being quite right. So, uh, you know, just really going for it with some of the effects, like the um, the bit where the, the, the doctor sort of goes back onto his back and starts crawling after Donna and just really not holding back with some of those shots. Um, 
I think that works fine, even though it looks really weird and <laughs> uh, well, I, strange. I, I love that shot in particular um, for the, the reason I just said, because like <laughs> when the doctor's like head is looking back up through his <laughs> legs, you know, it's, it's very, um, that looks cheesy. But then when he starts like walking around, it's scary. Yeah. Like, and it, and it just switches so quickly from, you know, ridiculous to scary. And I love that. It just allowed for that extra bit of sort of body horror as well, which you don't really get a lot of in Doctor Who. Um, you know, the whole, well, just that whole thing, that whole kind of body being warped, messed about with image. You know, we have, we have had it before. We've had it in Silence the Library and it, it seemed to be something that happened to Perry every five minutes. But yeah, I think it was used really effectively here in the fact that like you say, um, it was a combination of practical and CGI. It it really allowed for something creepy, and it took a bit of getting used to. But looking back at some of the stills from it, and it, it just looks fantastic. It looks so bizarre. It looks like the sort of thing we're not used to seeing in Doctor Who, really. Um, but yeah, absolutely fantastically done. And it, it's, I think we genuinely are doing stuff that they couldn't have got away with in sort of the noughties um you know the slitheen they were great at the time but looking back now they're not perfect you know the slitheen now do look in some ways as primitive as some classic who effects but that's that's fine that's it's just the matching with the slitheen i think even at the time that that stood out pretty badly It, it was that bit in downing street when they they jumped between a pretty decent costume to cgi that just did not match in terms of movement and look yeah and, um, yeah they and, should yeah, have like just costumed it all the way yeah or like yeah picked one or the other but like the meep is an example of how they've completely turned that around and they've got like such an elaborate blend of practical and cgi in the star beast uh, and it all just just works absolutely um so obviously this joins a fairly short list of Doctor Who stories that effectively only features the regulars. Um, there really aren't many. Uh, as I said before, there's Heaven Sent, you've got um, Scherzo at Big Finish, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much about it, really. The odd... The edge of know, destruction. Yes, of course. Um, and, and in some ways, it does absolutely nothing that any of those did it's kind of a new take on it and the fact that you had these two new body swapping creatures um as the villains you know nice unidentified villains very very midnight there um it it kind of allowed for this sort of really brilliantly gripping story where it was just david Tennant and Catherine tate on uh what is as we've said a gorgeous set so just kind of what, what are your thoughts on these kind of things, these two-handers, these bottle episodes, whatever you want to call them? Uh, do you want to go first, Mansour? Um, well, firstly, you don't really notice that it's a two-hander, I think, because it doesn't... Okay, the spaceship is deserted, but as an episode, it doesn't feel um, empty. It feels like there's a lot going on. Um, it feels populated. And I think the thing that makes it work or one of the things that makes it work in this situation is we talked about the effects but it's also the performance and how um 
Catherine Tate and David Tennant don't just switch between doing their normal performance or doing a villain performance. They mix it in this really subtle way in places. Like when they're trying to pass themselves off as the Doctor or Donna, there's just like something behind the eyes or just something about the way they move that is just a little bit off. Um, and I think that's part that really, really ups the the creepiness of um, of uh, yeah of that whole setup. Um, yeah, and I think it's what when you have uh, you know main cast members like Peter Capaldi or David Tennant or Catherine Tate. Uh, it seems like a really obvious thing to give them a bit of a showcase to just be like the only performers you've got for the duration of the episode. Uh, and I think it, it paid off. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just sort of, you know, you have got two incredible performers there. No one's ever going to debate that David Tennant and Catherine Tate are two of the best actors ever to go near Doctor Who. But yeah, they really pulled it off here. Uh, what do you think, Greg? Yeah, I, I think that that whole bit about you know like the the subtleties and the differences is absolutely correct i mean this is something that you could show in acting classes because of the the choices that david Tennant and Catherine tate make to indicate you know when they're playing the the aliens versus when they're playing their actual characters and sometimes you can't tell at all Sometimes it's just like subtle little hints, like a you know the 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 smile is slightly more arrogant than it would normally be, and of course sometimes it's just a completely different performance and just outright alien. But I think that having that that level of performance there really makes something like this work because you effectively end up with four characters, even though you have two actors and i think that you know there there is a a big difference between this and you know something like heaven sent and i love heaven sent it's maybe the best episode of doctor who we've ever had it's it's utterly fantastic but that is because it's only peter capaldi that's something that's very like focused just on the doctor and you know and everything about it is either explicitly about the doctor or metaphorically about the doctor. Whereas here, I mean, you're, you're, you're still telling a, an adventure story. You're still telling a horror story and it gives you some detail about the characters, but because you effectively have four characters instead of two, it still allows that to be spread out more. But Regardless, I mean, I, I think it's it's a great way to, well, first of all, it's a great way to be able to keep secret what's going to happen in the episode, because, of course, you know, you don't have a million and one extras who can leak things, and it's very, um, it's very claustrophobic in that sense, and, and, and yet it, it still gives you, you know, a sort of open feeling about the the, the characters and their interactions. Um, I, I do think that this episode could have been done in the previous RTD era. 
Um, you'd have to get rid of some of the chase sequences, but you know, the, the basic concept of it would still work. And I think here, like to be able to take that two-hander or four-hander or whatever you want to call it and blend it with the bigger budget and be able to set it in these much more expansive locations makes it very interesting and, and it works very well. I think that really there are new opportunities for story selling now and I do think that maybe we will see some Doctor Who stories that we've seen before sort of trotted out and given a a very very nice makeover and Maybe there is just a little bit more or something more interesting that can be done now there is this bigger budget. And I think this is just an example of that. It's it, it's just a very, very solid, good episode of Doctor Who. And it, it wasn't exceptional or you know special, inverted commas. Um, the special thing about it is that it's David Tennant and Catherine Tate back in Doctor Who again. That's That's what makes it special. And that's all that's needed to make it special everything else is just really really good solid doctor who and i think that ultimately is perhaps the best thing to come out of it and i think that perhaps obviously we've not seen the giggle yet but i think in the future when the hype's died down and you know we're past the meep and we're past the toy maker and all that kind of thing i think people probably will look back and see this as perhaps the best of the three um it might take a while to get there, but you know, fan wisdom does does change every now and again. Um, so let's let's just address uh, some of the rumours that sort of came with this episode because it was very very under advertised, very under promoted, and all of the big spoilers and all of the supposed leaks and that kind of thing that have come out. Um, are about the first or third episode. So this one was kind of the quiet one in the middle. And I think they've played that to their advantage. And they've sort of, I believe Russell T. Davis has said they want to see what happens when you don't kind of overly push an episode, overly promote an episode. And overnight figures suggest that it's really not lost many viewers at all based on last week. Uh, But we won't sit here talking about viewing figures because we'd be here for the rest of time um but ultimately uh it kind of allowed speculation to build up around this episode and as greg said earlier at some point every surviving doctor actor was definitely going to turn up in this without any shadow of a doubt and susan was in there and rose was in there and all of this kind of thing um so just kind of Let's talk about some of these bonkers rumours that kind of surrounded it. Um, I guess what I'm asking is, what did you go into it expecting and what had you been led to expect, even if you weren't expecting it? So do you want to go first, Mansoor? I tried to avoid reading too much about rumours, but I did pick up on, you know, mentions of Matt Smith and Doctors and something big um but then i think before the episode aired uh, there was something with russell t davis that i saw in the weeks leading up where he pretty much debunked anything extraordinary in terms of cameos and returning characters now he might have been bluffing um but i went into it with like quite low expectations about some massive um, cameo or, or returning actor, uh, which I think helped a little bit because you just kind of 
take the episode on its own terms. And I, and I do get some people, I do totally see the point of view of people wanting like each of these three stories to be something monumental and like seismic, either in terms of story or uh, in terms of, uh, you know, changing something for the characters or challenging the characters. Um, but I think we got like a lot of good character stuff in this story and in terms of cameos and returning characters i know it's not the 60th anniversary story it's the centenary of the bbc i I don't really know how you would top power of the doctor in terms of honoring or referring back to the history of the whole show um you know having you know all those those classic doctors and companions come back for such significant scenes in a story um that yeah how, how do you how, you can't really go back to that well so soon after after doing that last year um so yeah in terms of rumors my expectations were low and i think that helped because i just went in and tried to sort of see the story on its own terms yeah i think that because we did get the you know the look at various classic doctors and the McGann return and all of that kind of thing in Power of the Doctor, we didn't really need it now. We didn't need it this year. And I'm kind of glad it's not happened because two years on the bounce, it would have felt a little bit cheap. It would have felt like Doctor Who was just looking back. And we've heard from so many people that it needs to look forward and be this brave new thing in the Disney era that... Yeah, looking back at this point, maybe not the right thing to do. I'll be honest, I'd have been over the moon if Peter Capaldi had turned up for 20 seconds, but I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't I wasn't even wanting it in particular, really. Uh, what about you, Greg? Rumours and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm not the kind of person that goes looking for spoilers and things like that. Um, I wasn't expecting you know much of anything out of this largely all i saw was people on twitter speculating and you know how much that's worth so i doesn't you know didn't really take any of that seriously but um yeah i mean the fact that they didn't say anything about it is just naturally going to lead to rumor mongering i mean well why why wouldn't they say anything about it? And it turns out the answer is just so that you can go into this really like creepy, unsettling horror episode and be genuinely surprised by what's coming. But fans are naturally going to think, oh, well, they must be concealing something from us. And that turned out not to be the case. And it didn't surprise me because while admittedly, you know, we never saw Russell Davis, um, do an actual anniversary story because there were no anniversaries during his tenure, you know, whether it was the 50th during Stephen Moffat's tenure or the BBC, the centenary during um, Chris Chibnall's era, you know, RTD didn't have those, but his use of continuity in his original era was never gratuitous. I mean, yeah, of course we brought the Daleks back and the Cybermen back and the Centaurans and the Master and Davros and, and so on and so forth. But it it was never like 
it wasn't thrown in like as a, hey, remember this kind of thing. It was always set up. There was always groundwork laid for it. His little continuity Easter eggs were always, you know, just tiny little asides, like someone casually mentioning, you know, Kronkburgers or something like that. And so I wasn't expecting you know, some sort of massive cameo-based spectacular because that's just not the way that he's ever operated. And maybe there will be something like that in the giggle. I don't know. I'd, I'd still be surprised, though. Like I, I just, I, that's not RTD's style, and I, I was not surprised that it didn't happen. You've reminded me of when um, as the Runaway Bride was first on, and we got that first New Who reference to Gallifrey after two full series it was really drip fed the continuity stuff was it was it was so brilliantly done and we're obviously not getting that level of subtlety here but at the same time this isn't doctor who dipping its toe in the 21st century to see if it'll work this is doctor who having proved itself over 13 series and goodness knows how many specials already um you know we know from things that are going to come up like Mel returning and all that kind of thing that Russell T Davis is definitely in favor of embracing the past a little more this time round and I think he he sort of avoided it out of caution uh in his original run um and it it wasn't really till uh Stephen Moffat properly got settled in that we did start to pick up the continuity references and that kind of thing but even then it took a while and you know doctor who had to be the biggest thing in the world before any of that really started to take place i like a continuity reference but at the same time i like the fact that we can have something that's just nice and there and one hour in and one hour out kind of thing which is exactly what this was it was almost like we got a sneak peek into a second series of David Tennant and Catherine Tate had it happened in 2009 um, and I I like it for that I like it for exactly what it was it's just a good Doctor and Donna story um, one thing I, it did address oh go on I was also going to say I mean I, I think you know these are we just have these three episodes with you know the the 14th Doctor and Donna and it's basically, you know, just one little story arc. I mean, even though, you know, this was just a completely separate thing. Like, I I do think there's a risk of of overfilling it. Like, I, I feel like, you know, the, there was so much that the Star Beast had to do. And there's so much that the Giggle has to do. That, like, if you crammed a bunch of stuff into Wild Blue Yonder also, I think it would just make this whole thing feel cluttered. Like, I, I think you need this, not just as like, hey, you know, here's one last like traditional adventure with the Doctor and Donna, but like, hey, here's a point to take a breath after part one before we get into part two. And, you know, I, I think it would be dramatically unsound to just turn this into, you know, just three hours of nothing but revelations and references and cameos and so forth. Yeah, it it would have been very easy to make all of these specials too busy, um, and also we have we've kind of got assuming that next week is going to be a big grand epic finale. We've kind of got 
three different types of Russell T Davis episode here. We've got the opening blockbuster, we've got the mid-series weird and wonderful sci-fi episode, and we're going to get the big explosive crowd-pleasing finale. And it's kind of great that we, we, we've we got what will hopefully prove to be three very, very different episodes as these specials, but all very uniquely Doctor Who and very Russell T. Davis as well. Um, so one thing that was kind of touched on and referenced and the episode spent a bit of time to explore was things that happened in um, Chris Chibnall, Jodie Whittaker's era, we kind of address the flux and get a almost definitive answer as to actually what happened during the flux. And, um, you know, there's reference to Gallifrey being destroyed again. There's reference to the Doctor not actually knowing who the Doctor is, the timeless child and that kind of thing. Um, and I thought it was brilliantly handled. Like, there were a lot of questions left over after flux. And I, I actually half expected them to just be left there you know maybe big finish would have talked about it at some point uh when jodie whittaker comes on board but ultimately it seems to have stared it in the face and dealt with it and that's another thing that you can do in an episode like this you can stop to breathe and you can stop to think and doctor who hasn't stopped to think since flux it's all been specials um and bbc centenaries and all that kind of thing so it was good that we kind of got answers to some of these questions, you know, what damage did the flux do? Is it being brushed under the carpet? Oh no, it destroyed half the universe. And the doctor blames himself for it. And I just thought it was a great little callback. I thought it was a great way to address the last few years and just to kind of make sure that they're there in continuity because every five seconds, there's somebody on Twitter demanding that Russell T Davis has to undo Flux and has to undo The Timeless Child and always in capital letters usually. Uh, but no, I'm glad I'm glad it's there and I'm glad that it's not being ignored and it's nice to have that little carryover. Um, so is there anything that you'd sort of like to add about that? Uh, Mansour, you go first. Um, I rewatched the episode today and that scene is one of my favourites. Um, so that for a few reasons, like you mentioned, um, I totally agree just on a kind of fan level, it's nice to have some sort of definitive answer as to how much of the universe is still there or isn't, which I don't, I don't think we really did at the end of Flux. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with that thing about acknowledging the previous era. Whatever you think about the last few years of Doctor Who, that is part of the history of the show. So I was actually quite quite happy to see that you know, Russell T Davies is very early on just acknowledging that history and making it part of the character that he's going to um, be presenting on screen in the next few years. Um, and then lastly, it, it, it didn't feel gratuitous or out of place because that scene plays out in a really, really compelling way. The the, the creature, the alien, is is using the flux to open up a very relatively recent and still sore wound for the doctor make him vulnerable and then the timing of it when he gets to the point where he's just like sharing genuine emotion and he's just moving towards donna to give her a hug and tell her how he feels about you know all the years that they've been apart and 
that moment she just like laughs in his face and then collapses into that that puddle and it's yeah it, it's just a really sort of nicely creepy and cruel um turn at that moment in the scene um so yeah i think the continuity was handled well and it played out in a really interesting creepy way in the story itself as well i'm just i'm really really glad that it's getting acknowledged i'm really really glad that we haven't completely blocked the previous era out because i did kind of feel that when stephen moffat came in the door really did close on the russell t davis area you know we built up quite a nice cast of recurring characters and friends and companions and the doctor wasn't alone in the universe anymore which he was at the start of um at the start of rose so there's that um and you know same again everything after um twice upon a time feels completely disconnected from it it again is just chopped out and Jodie Whittaker was very much her own isolated Doctor era, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's really nice to have this continuity. It's really nice to sort of have one showrunner really acknowledging the work of the previous one as opposed to just sort of planting their own stamp on it. Uh, what are your thoughts on it, Greg? Well, I'm going to pick up from where both of you just left off. Um, you know, Mansoor, you know, you said that we we went to, you know, that that great scene where, you know, the doctor is like cruelly rejected by the the alien creature. And then after that, you know, we get that scene in the hallway where he has a full on breakdown, just like, you know, because he's he's feeling so like ripped open and so raw and just screaming and punching the wall. And then later on at the very end, when actual donna tries to approach him and engage him in this he's just completely shut down like he will not talk about it because of what just happened to him and because of how you know traumatized he feels about it and you know i i i like that they're you know embracing what came before i mean i I think it would be the height of, of childishness to you know go through and write out all the things about the previous era that, you know, you did, you may not necessarily have agreed with. And honestly, we'll never know what RTD even honestly thinks about the, the Chibnall era. Cause that's something he would never, if he doesn't like it, he's never going to say that. So we'll, we'll, we'll never know like what he is quote unquote truly thinking. Um, but, you know, I, going down that road just leads you to, the Rise of Skywalker, which is the worst Star Wars film and exists almost entirely just to erase everything The Last Jedi did. And and that's what, you know, something like that would be in Doctor Who. And so I'm very glad they don't do it. And the other thing that I love about it is that not only does this, you know, give us some answers and some context for the timeless child and flux, it actually engages with these concepts emotionally. And that was my biggest problem with the Chibnall era was that, like, I, you know, I, I don't think that the, the whole timeless child thing is inherently a bad idea necessarily. I don't think that there was anything wrong with the whole flux plot line. It just, it always felt like it just didn't have the impact that it should. You know, when when the thirteenth Doctor, you know, when when she does learn about the timeless child and all that 
basically the conclusion she comes to is, well, that doesn't really matter because I'm me now and I'm the way I am and my history isn't that important. And like, I guess as a mission statement, that's okay. But like, as a, as a bit of character development, it's like you, you introduce this thing and then you just crumple it up and throw it away. Well, you know, Russell Davis is not interested in doing that. Like he's saying, oh, well, this is a absolutely seismic shift in how the, the doctor perceives himself of themselves. And I'm going to get into the emotion of it because a rational being would be heavily traumatized by all of these things happening. And, and honestly, I think in the end, RTD is probably grateful to, to Chibnall for setting these things up because RTD's conception of the doctor is of this, you know, this, this lonely character who's traversing the universe who, on the one hand can, can greatly appreciate all the joy and beauty and wonder of the universe. But on the other hand is carrying such a, such a heavy burden and if not for the timeless child and the flux there wouldn't be the same burden on the doctor because you know everything about the time war was was wiped away by by day of the doctor so that really gave russell davis this potential for the character to have some some real depth to explore and i was very impressed by how they did it the other thing is i think that sort of the flux and everything else that's gone on over the last few series, it's almost like the big reset that um, the Time War was when it was first introduced in The End of the World. It, it's Russell T. Davis likes to start with a bit of a blank slate, but already some kind of emotional trauma involved. And he's done it again. He's actually pretty much set himself up to start precisely where he did last time. Um, and it's, yeah, Chibnall's kind of put him precisely where he wants to be with Timeless Child and with Flux and that kind of thing. And I think the nice thing about, about Flux, too, is that it's kind of like Legopolis in a way, because in that story, a whole big chunk of the universe was wiped out. And, you know, it has the detail that that chunk included Trocken, so we can, you know, at least in the way that Classic Who did, which was not much, we can explore, like, how, you know, how that impacted Nyssa and so forth. But at the same time, like, the universe is really big, so, you know, you don't have to acknowledge it. In fact, they really never acknowledge it again, and you don't need to. And I think that's the same thing here. Like, it can simultaneously be something that, you know, gives us more depth to the Doctor's character, but at the same time, it's not something that needs to compromise any future storytelling opportunities. And, and it goes it goes back to like series twelve as well, because Chibnall redestroyed Gallifrey. So again, it's another example of taking the, the you know the current status quo of the Doctor back to what Russell T Davis introduced in two thousand and five. That he is the last of the Time Lords. There isn't this planet of super powerful beings that he can go go visit. Until he wants them to be, at least. It might yeah. be Russell T. Davis <laughs> decides he wants to do that big, deadly assassin sequel, in which case I'm sure they'll be straight back on the feet again. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it, it, you know, within, within a couple of episodes, Russell T. Davis has established exactly where he wants every piece on the board to be. Um and it's it's sort of good to see going forward how he's going to play with those pieces. Um, and, I, I, you know, I do think there'll be some interesting stuff next week. I do think, like I say, we're on for 
a big Russell T Davis style finale in the giggle. Um, and it, it's quite an exciting prospect. I guess uh, the next thing to talk about then would be the final scene uh, when the Doctor and Donna make it back to Earth and Wilf is there waiting for him in um, what, what Russell T Davies has since said is Bernard Cribbin's final contribution to Doctor Who before he passed away. Um, and it was it was a lovely little scene. It was a beautiful just little moment and I'm so glad it's there and it's a shame they weren't able to film anything for the next episode with him, but we, we had to have Wilf, didn't we? We couldn't have not had Wilf. Um, so just some quick thoughts on that final scene, Mansour. Yeah, obviously just uh, not much to say beyond it was um, yeah, amazing, really nice to see him. Um, and I'm, I'm taking you know, um, Russell T. Davis's statement about this being the only thing, I'm taking that at face value because I know he's sort of told white lies in the past about the Cybermen turning up or the Daleks, but I, I feel like this is the sort of thing he'd be, he wouldn't be, uh, uh, he'd be more honest about. Um, so, yeah, if it was the last moment, uh, it was a nice little scene. And it's 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 set up earlier as well with Donna talking about her family and which of them would be the ones waiting for her. Um, and... Yeah, obviously you have if you know the the history of the show, it's linking right back to the end of time when the tenth Doctor went out and Wilf was so so central to that story. Um, so yeah, it it felt very right to have him uh, appear here. If he's not in next week's at all, which is what seems to be the case, I'm just hoping that. Uh, uh, maybe some of the other characters from Donna's family do get some time because it'll be nice to see a bit more of Rose and like Sylvia. I'm really interested in as well because like it, it's not made a huge deal of, but between um, the end of time and uh, and the Star Beast, she seems to have gone on some really sort of interesting arc of mellowing out and becoming very super protective of Donna. So. So yeah, if there's no more Wilf, I hope that at least you know we get the next best thing, and maybe some mention of him by Sylvia or her standing in for the the role that he played in End of Time. Yeah, it certainly seems to be that uh, the Doctor's final words to Sylvia in Journey's End kind of resonated a bit. Yeah, you know her her sort of views of Donna have changed massively, and it's brilliant. It's nice that she's had her own little off-screen character arc, I guess. Um, anything you want to add, Greg? I mean, yeah, there's not much to say about the scene because not much happens in it, but it's just, it's so delightful to see Wilf again. It's so delightful to see Bernard Cribbins in the show, you know, one last time. You know, he, from the behind the scenes, I mean, he was clearly having the time of his life, like, you know, filming what he did and, it's 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 just fantastic because you know Wilf is such a great character and and you can see just the pure joy on on the doctor's face when he sees Wilf and it's because you know Wilf is strangely a character that knows the doctor better than almost anyone in the history of the show like the doctor had more emotionally open and vulnerable conversations with Wilf than I think he did with anybody else. And, and, and just in just his short time on screen, like it's, it's, 
it's a genuinely beautiful relationship that they have and and it's and it's so nice to be able to see it one last time yeah it it, it wasn't quite a goodbye scene which would have been heartbreakingly lovely but it, it's just so great to have him there and that he could be part of it and he was as big a part as uh, of uh, that sort of series for an end of time as Donna was as Sylvia was and all that sort of thing so yeah it was absolutely wonderful that they just got him in there um, even if it was for sort of just that one scene he was able to do um, well we shall leave it there um, and we'll be back to podcasting next week obviously where we're going to talk about the giggle and we'll kind of do another episode in the not too distant future as well, kind of looking back on all three of these specials and sort of the 14th Doctor era, I guess. Um, I have to admit that I have sort of read a few spoilers about, well, potential spoilers about next week's, and it, it certainly looks like it may head in an interesting direction, so I'm quite excited to see where the giggle actually goes. But so far, these specials have definitely been two out of two. I'll very quickly end by asking you both a pretty difficult question, actually. What did you prefer, the Star Beast or Wild Blue Yonder? You go first, Mansoor. Uh, it is hard because they're just very different stories. They do different things well. Um, if you had, if you made me pick one of the two, I'd probably prefer Wild Blue Yonder. But there's stuff that the Star Beast does amazingly well that doesn't feature in Wild Blue Yonder at all. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's my preferred one out of the two. And what about you, Greg? Wild Blue Yonder is my favorite of the two, but I agree that part of the reason why it works so well is because Star Beast does so much of the work setting things up that, again, here we can just take a breath and clear the decks and you know just really focus on the Doctor and Donna. So I don't think either can you know necessarily exist without the other, but just as in terms of just my pure enjoyment, Wild Blue Yonder. Uh, yeah, man, it's three for three here then. I've definitely preferred Wild Blue Yonder. Um, but both, as you've said, excellent episodes and they've both linked together so well. And like I say, I just hope it continues with the giggle. Um, well, that is definitely all we have time for. Um, so I will say thank you and goodbye to Mansour. Thank you. And thank you and goodbye to Greg. Thank you and goodbye. And we shall be back next week for more podcasting. Goodbye now. Goodbye.